Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another guest episode of the Grace Moments podcast. I love having others join me on here who can uplift and encourage you and that you can know you're not alone in your struggles. And there are many other people out there facing and overcoming challenges through grace, just like you. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming a dear friend of mine to the podcast. Callan Conkle makes her home in Georgia and is a wife, soon to be mother, entrepreneur, and lover of all things beautiful. She brings to the table a raw and real story of recovery, forgiveness, and healing that I just can't wait for you to hear. I'm glad you're here to listen today, and I hope you walk away feeling a little more seen, heard, and accepted in light of today's conversation. Here now is my chat with Callan Conkle. Let's start at the beginning. You grew up as a military kid. Your dad was a Navy pilot. You moved around a lot in your childhood. Give us a taste of what life was like for you as a young girl. So yeah, you kind of covered the first decade of my life. I think my dad was in the Navy until I was eight years old. And then we relocated to the Dallas-Fort Worth area because he became an airline pilot after that. So to me, I always say I'm from the Dallas-Fort Worth area, um, even though we moved around a lot before that. But um, I feel like I'm one of those people that change doesn't really scare me a whole lot. And maybe that's just because I did move around a decent amount when I, when we were, I guess, in my younger years. And so our family has always kind of had that, um, that mindset of being flexible and traveling and always open to new adventures. So that's kind of how I grew up. And it's definitely translated into my adult life where, um, my husband and I are always looking for new adventures. So you've talked in the past about how you were always sort of driven by a desire to be the good girl, you know, not necessarily cause any trouble for anyone, make sure others were pleased. Would you say that early on, um, that, that, this was the case and also did it create in you growing into adulthood a a need for perfection and approval? Yeah, so that is a huge part of my story. Um, It's interesting because I, my mom kind of jokes about how I was such a rebellious toddler, but then up until, or probably when I hit, I don't know, three or four years old, I started becoming that good girl where I never wanted to get in trouble. I always wanted to follow the rules. And what is interesting looking back is I wanted to follow the rules as a child so much to where I would actually be deceptive to my parents, making them think I was obeying some of the rules, but I actually wasn't because, you know, we all have (laughs) our sin nature and we all um, break the rules sometimes. And so looking back, yes, I had that total desire to have the approval of my parents and especially any authorities in my life. So teachers Mm. and coaches and things like that. And, um, I, I think I wanted their approval so badly that I would cover up any mistakes that I made, made along the way as to the best of my ability so that I wouldn't get in trouble. And so it was this constant battle of, you know, trying to act like I had it all together when really, I was just as, you know, just as messed up as the next kid. And I think other, I know I had my sister and then another best friend I had when I was little, they, 
joke with me now because they used to get in trouble a lot more than I did, but now they give me a hard time because they, they're like, Callan, you were right there with us, but somehow you got out of getting in trouble. And I somehow, you know, it's just so funny because their, their mistakes were more visible to other people, people, whereas I tried to cover mine up all the time. So as that translated into later in life and, you know, obviously there's always going to be a authority figures in your life that you want to please, but it just became such a habit for me over the years to, to want to be perceived by other people as the good girl and the one who follows the rules and the one who always does things with excellence. And none of those are bad things in themselves, but it definitely became an idol to the point where I first didn't, didn't feel like there was any room for error in my own life because I had kind of made people think that I was, or tried to make people think I was perfect and tried to take on that perfection myself, um, to the point where it definitely became, it kind of backfired <laughs> eventually. So fast forward to college, you attend the university of Alabama and for a while you started to explore your faith on a deeper level. And so that started to play a role in your life. Um, Tell us about that and sort of your, the role that faith had in your life um, prior to that. Sure. So I always recognized the fact that I was baptized as a, when I was five years old, I was sprinkle baptized in the church following a, I guess you could say a confession of faith with my whole family. The four of us joined a church when I was five and I specifically remember at that time, praying the prayer and realizing, oh, I need forgiveness for my sins. And I remember praying that, you know, God would forgive my sins. And so from the age of five years old, I felt like I always had some semblance of a relationship with God, Mm -hmm. but I didn't have a whole lot of structure as far as discipleship and someone really teaching me the principles of the faith or what it means to be a disciple growing up. And so, uh, you know, I guess with the busyness of life. And we got into, I became super involved in sports. And so church kind of went by the wayside for my family. You know, we would Mm -hmm. go on the holidays and Christmas Eve and Easter, we would check the box, but it was never a vital part of my family's life growing up. And so when I got to college, I, like I said, I had always held on to my faith in some capacity, but when I got to my freshman year at Alabama, that was the first time where I really wanted to commit to going to church on a regular basis for the very first time in my life. I knew it was, you know, you just turn over a new leaf when you get to college. And so I started going to church, you know, with a couple of my roommates and friends from college. And it's just so interesting because looking back, you know, you don't, I know that church doesn't always have to be the one thing that is defining of your faith. But for me, that's really the time where I started learning what a relationship with God actually looks like and what it means to be a disciple. So I, you know, even though I had lived over a decade with some kind of relationship with God, it wasn't until my freshman year of college where I actually started, you know, I still started from the place of a baby Christian on spiritual milk and trying to figure out what it means to grow in your faith and to be discipled and to be taught and to, you know, just live out your faith in a way that 
I had never experienced before. So whereas it had been, a, God had been part of my life all growing up, it was never the center. And so that began the journey of figuring out how to actually put Christ at the center. While at U of A, you competed for the school uh, in women's diving. You had the opportunity to go to nationals and interact with some of the best in the sport, including future Olympians, David Badiah and Steele Johnson. Even though you've spoken in the past about the great moments the sport of diving gave you, you've also been open about the fact it wasn't all as it seemed behind the scenes and the world of collegiate sports also held a hugely negative side for you and many other athletes. In what ways do you feel like it fueled your need for approval and reinforced some of the lies that you'd come to believe about yourself? You know, that's a such a complex question because there's so many aspects of elite sports that some people handle a lot better than others. And some people have a different perspective on because, and I think it, it does come down to personal experience. And for me, my, my personal experience with it was that when I was in middle school and high school and doing club diving with a team and a coach that we were a super tight knit community, uh, super tight knit team. We had such a camaraderie of team spirit looking back my motivation for doing well in competitions and for even you know just working hard on a daily basis to aspire to be the best in my sport before college my motivation was very much centered around pleasing my coach because I to be honest idolized my coach and everything that he was teaching us and and you know I guess idolized is somewhat accurate I just admired and respected him so much that of course I wanted to do everything in my power to, to carry out what he wanted for us and for our team. And we did have such a tight knit team that I wanted to do well because of, for the sake of our team, not just for myself individually. And so I was very blessed to be part of a very successful program previous, you know, in the years previous to college. And so, and it, when I got to college, it's a much more individualized sport because you're coming in. I mean, I, I guess I should say diving is an individual sport, no matter how you slice it, but there is a team aspect to it because you earn points and your team succeeds and loses based on the performance of each individual. But when you get to college, you know, you're, you're coming together with maybe 10 teammates because diving usually has about 10, 10 to 12 people per team you're coming in with these people who you, you haven't known for very long. You, some of them you're just meeting and it's a lot less cohesive in some ways than a team that you've grown up with your, you know, half of your life. And so for me, when I got to college, it became a lot more individual focused. And I realized that my motivation no longer, I was no longer just, I, it wasn't that I didn't care to do well, but without the seeking approval or aspiring to be the best for the sake of my team and for this, you know, a coach that I've been with for years and years, I realized that I didn't have a lot of intrinsic motivation to keep me going. Of course, I wanted to please my coach and I still carried that desire for approval with me into college, but not having that relationship with him already established, it was a very new relationship and so try as I might to muster up motivation to individually do well, I just found that I 
I didn't have as much motivation to succeed on my own just for the sake of me succeeding. It was, it had, I realized it had always been, wow, I so admire and respect my coach. I love my team. I want to do well for other people. And again, that kind of plays into the perspective or other wanting other people to perceive me as a certain way. Whereas when I got to college, it was, although the focus was on the individual, I just, I didn't have the same motivation anymore to, to do well. And so I think that when it comes to the kind of the negative aspects behind the scene, there is such a mentality that you are, especially in college, you're defined by your sport and you, this is your identity. This is why you came to college. This is how you're paying for college. You know, there's the, all these expectations that come along with a college athletic experience because you're no longer just part of a team because it's an extracurricular activity and it's a fun thing to do. It's now your job. And so while that does have so many benefits and I am so thankful for my experience as a college athlete, it, I really found that the, the rose colored glasses you kind of look through <laughs> to, to view college athletes through in college athletics, I really was a, a bit disillusioned by what all goes into that and the expectations that come along with that. And so um, I think on the other side of it, which we might get into in a little bit, is that, you know, you come into this new pool of people that you aren't familiar with and everyone comes in at a different talent level. And maybe you were a big fish in a small pond back home and now you're a small fish in a really big pond. And so you're constantly comparing yourself to all these new people around you with different experience levels, different records who have come in with, you know, their own set of achievements. And so, so for me, you know, you constantly have this, you're trying to find your place and where you fit into this new pool of people, whether that's in a, an achievement standpoint, or for me, uh, a big part of that was comparing just your, your body, your body image to other people. And so I know that's a big part of my testimony where, like I said, your identity, your, the way you perceive yourself, the way you want to be perceived by others, everything, you know, you just, you kind of are taking a step back and figuring out who am I in the midst of all of this. And a lot of times in college athletics, and even prior to that, as we know, sport, your, your own sport and your own achievements and your status within your sport can become such a focal point where your whole life revolves around that. And you, you're, self-esteem rises and falls with whatever may be happening that day. You kind of touched on it, but I want to kind of delve into it a little more deeply. About this time, you also began to struggle with an eating disorder. This is something many more people deal with than we often realize. And so many privately wrestle with trying to escape its hold on their life. Experts often say it's a way for someone to falsely give themselves a sense of control. Was that the case for you? And would you mind sharing with us the reality of that battle? Sure. Yes, absolutely. I, I want to start by saying to reinforce what you said, I do believe this is so much more widespread of a problem than, than anybody could imagine. And it's one of those things that doesn't really get talked about a lot, especially Mm -mm. in the mental health arena. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, what I, what I think because of my experience is to me, I'm 
one of the last people that you would expect to struggle with something like this because, and, and it makes sense because as you know, wanting approval, such a perfectionist, all these things, I kind of had some of the, you know, the red flags leading up to that. Sure. However, being someone who I attempted to do everything the right way, do everything with excellence, not cut corners, not ever have a lack of integrity in the things that I do. That's the, the image that I wanted to project to other people. And so when people did find out eventually that I had an eating disorder for a time, a lot of people were very surprised because I did not seem like someone who was, who was susceptible to something like that, where it was, you know, all about secrecy. And, um, I don't think people expected that I would fall into a category of someone who struggled that deeply. And so, and that is, I mean, it's by the grace of God that I don't, I don't tend to have a lot of other struggles in the mental health arena. And so for people to realize that I was struggling on such a deeper level than people could see on the surface, I think it took a lot of people by surprise, myself included, because, you know, I was like, I, oh, you know, I don't, I don't struggle with that. And, you know, trying to convince myself that Mm -hmm. I had more control than I actually did. And so my experience with that was, of course, in, in high school and growing up, there's especially being an athlete, let alone an athlete in a swimsuit 24 seven, you Mm -hmm. always are, are aware of your body and wanting to be the best. And of course, with being an athlete at that level, you are working out and exercising day and night, twice a day, every day, you know, there's no shortage of keeping in physical shape, but with that also you I know for my personal experience, we as a team kind of, and this is prior to college, we as a team would during nationals season or whatever, we would go about a a month or more and kind of make a pact as a team where, okay, we're not going to eat dessert until after nationals, just to kind of, you know, put our bodies into submission and to not indulge in things that we're going to set us back at all. Now, looking back, I'm like, you know, eating dessert is not going to set you back depending on how you approach that. And so, but we had this kind of restrictive mindset for us for periods of time while I was, while I was growing up. And so, you know, one of the things about going to college is you no longer have a lot of rules that you have to follow that maybe restrictions that were imposed on you as a kid. And, and it wasn't, it was, yes, my coach, it was kind of his idea to kind of have us all revolve around this restrictive mindset. I don't think he, he would have never meant it that way. It was just a way for us to have some self-control and then have a reward after we were done with our nationals meet. And so there was no ill intent behind it at all, but it's funny what the human brain can do with that as it develops and as it, you know, develops these habits. And so when I got to college and I, I realized um, now I have control over, do I want to eat dessert? Do I want to keep these rules going? Do I want to put more restrictions on myself? And so what happened was I took what may have been a good idea at first, as far as self-control and discipline, and it it started translating into, I would, this is kind of getting into the nitty gritty, but I would eat extremely healthy per se, meaning in my, in my definition back then, very low calorie, um, not, not 
any fat in my diet hardly because back then I was basically afraid of any foods that contained fat. And so I would restrict, restrict, restrict all through the week. And then as you know, as a way of having self-control. And then I would let my, myself have dessert or whatever I wanted on the weekends, which sounds, you know, again, could be harmless on the surface if you're having a well-balanced diet throughout the week, but I was not. I was definitely not getting enough nutrition throughout the week, thinking I was doing my body a service by being, quote, healthy. But then on the weekends, I would overindulge. So I would start just totally losing control because that's how my brain worked is, oh, I've been restricted all week and now it's my time to enjoy myself. And sure. that totally backfired. So over time, really during my freshman year, you know, people, again, with the perception of other people towards me, people knew me as, oh, she eats so healthy. She is yeah. so impressive. Yeah. The, the how she, you know, she'll go to the dining hall and just get vegetables and a little piece of meat. And wow, look at that. It's so, you know, she's not going for the cereal bar. <laughs> a lot of people are. And let me tell you, there's nothing wrong with the cereal bar. Cause <laughs> I would probably go for that sometimes nowadays, but what, what I really fell into was this, this pattern of restrict overindulge, restrict overindulge. And it became even more extreme on both ends because the more I overindulge on the weekends, the more I felt like I needed to restrict myself during the week. So freshman year, that is when that pattern developed. And I, to be honest, you know, you kind of enjoy the, the accolades of some people saying, wow, look at Callan. She's such a healthy eater. When I know in my mind that I'm going to reverse all the you know, I'm going to reverse the restriction and overindulge on the weekends. And then, and it just, it becomes this very unhealthy pattern. And so the, where that switched, I think it was, um, probably over the summer between my freshman and sophomore year, I started to feel more and more guilty for when I would overindulge because my body was so deprived of nutrition during the week mm -hmm. that when I would overindulge, I then felt so guilty because there was zero balance. It was either extreme one direction or the other. So I sometime over the summer between freshman and sophomore year, I had, I really wasn't familiar with a lot of I really didn't even think I had an eating disorder at that point. I just thought, oh, my, you know, I'm restricting myself too much and then I'm overindulging too much. I didn't understand what that was. And then I wanted to, I wasn't familiar with what the term bulimia even meant. I just knew, oh, I've heard of um, where some people overindulge and then they purge to be able to not suffer the consequences of overindulging. And that's how some people go about eating. And so what, what started off as maybe a harmless, healthy way of having self-control, it then translated into, oh, well, now I'm overindulging so much. I no longer want to feel the guilt of that. So then I started becoming bulimic on top of borderline anorexic, um, mm -hmm. that, you know, kind of a combination of the two, which is pretty common come to find out where, you know, you, you might have, I, I would, I would have part of the day where I would restrict myself and barely eat anything. And then I would overindulge and then purge and you go back. It's just this whole flip-flopping process. And so for the majority of my sophomore year, that is the system I abided by where I would eat super overly healthy for a couple hours during the day or not eat much at all um, or very, very small portions. And then 
flip-flop over into where I felt the need to, um, to purge after that, after overindulging. So that went on for, I know a lot of people struggle with eating disorders for years and years. And it is such a, it's such a hole to, to dig out of. And it's, you know, it can be so, it can be lifelong for some people. I was very blessed that the majority of my story with the eating disorder, it was about two years in total that I really, um, struggled with actually practicing those things. And then I realized how much control this, uh, this disorder had over me. And I didn't, I wasn't even calling it what it was at the time. I was like, well, this is great. I can just eat however I want, not feel guilty about it. And then, and with the mindset of I can quit anytime I can go back to normal eating anytime, but then you, you try to do that and you can't, and you realize how much control that, that disorder does have over you. And so to, to circle back to your question about having a sense of control, um, I think that it was, of course, in a way, a way to control my own, my own body image, my own sense of what of other people's perceptions of me, especially. So whereas, you know, college is always chaotic. And it wasn't that I felt totally out of control. But there, if I wanted to control one thing, it was other people's perception of me, including my own body image and how people viewed me. So whether I wanted them to view me as healthy or, you know, fit or the person who is looking the best in a swimsuit that week, these subtleties, you don't even realize your brain is doing them, but yes, for sure. It was to be able to control other people's perception of me. I'm also curious to know how many in your life actually knew that you were dealing with this. Um, did you tell any family or friends what was going on? Were you keeping a huge secret from everyone? And if so, what was it like always feeling like you had to hide the truth from them? So during those two years, I was able to hide enough of the fact that I was struggling with that, especially my sophomore year. I, we moved from sharing rooms in the dorms to an apartment where I had my own room. I had my own space and I never had to, I was able to keep it a secret from everybody. I never, you know, I don't even think there was a point throughout that whole time where anyone had an inkling because eventually years down the road, when I actually came clean about all this, people were so taken aback and they, you know, they were just astounded that they never picked up on, on the fact that I was struggling with this. And so it wasn't until the beginning of my junior year where I had, I had realized, oh my goodness, this disorder has control over me. I don't have control over it. And at the beginning of my junior year, I was really wanting to stop and to get my eating back in order. I was wanting to, I had just realized that it was getting to be detrimental. And um, my now husband and I, who was my boyfriend at the time, we went through a series of, of um, you know, just struggles and problems and secrets were coming out with his past and my past. And, and it was at that time where we had kind of one of these big come to Jesus conversations where I finally shared with him, just him that I had been struggling with an eating disorder for the better part of a year or two at that point. And so I, he was the first person I ever told. Mm. And, um, and I think it was around 
a year, another year before anybody else besides him knew. And so he was surprised as anyone, because again, I think I have always tried to do a really good job of hiding any struggles that I have and projecting an image to the rest of the world that is not actually reflective of what's going on inside me. So it was honestly kind of easy to keep the secret because you know, I think in college, a lot of people are just focused on themselves and, and my, my husband and I at the time boyfriend were long distance. So he wasn't in my everyday life. I didn't have someone who was, who I was hanging out with every day, or I could basically go in my room, close the door, eat whatever I wanted, purge, do whatever. And I didn't have to, I had a very private environment that I could could go to. So while it wasn't hard to keep the secret, by the time that I realized it was such a problem, I, I knew that this secret was going to have to come out eventually. And so um, the turning point was when I told Kyle for the first time. Speaking of Kyle, we'll kind of shift gears a little bit in the conversation, still staying on the theme of, of keeping secrets, but you talked a little bit in the past about how at this point in your life, you also started to kind of get tired of the good girl image. Um, you began to de- develop a, a more lax um, attitude toward relationships and toward interactions with, you know, guys at school and various different things. Um, I'm just interested to know why you feel things changed in that way. And talk about that just a little bit as we kind of lead into that element of it too. So what kind of what I referenced before was eventually that perspective of wanting to be the good girl backfired on me because I, I think what happened was years and years of seeking approval from other people just became exhausting. And so I remember specifically when I left high school, I, you know, I've talked about the coach that I had for years in throughout high school for diving that I so admired. And he, I remember telling him or us having a conversation where he was like, Oh, you're not going to go off to college and be one of those people that just goes off the deep end. Are you? And and at the time I was like, absolutely not. I would never do that. Especially if you don't want me to, I'm going to stay the good girl. I'm going to keep my head on straight. I'm going to be the difference, you know, because so many people have similar college experiences where they, they do, you know, find the freedom of college and they have to go through their own struggles. And a lot of, sometimes that ends badly. Sometimes I guess rarely, sometimes people are able to keep a keep their head heads about them when they go off to college. But I was bound and determined my freshman year to not be the girl who goes off the deep end or anything like that. And so freshman year, I was very straight laced, didn't, you know, as I talked about restricted my diet, I wanted to stay fit, stay healthy, not gain the freshman 15. I wanted, I wasn't going to drink at all. Uh, I'm not going to dive into alcohol or anything like that. I didn't want to be the typical freshman who, you know, kind of loses their way. Um, and so I remember specifically, that was my mindset freshman year where I wanted to prove, especially to my coach back home, that I wasn't going to be one of those people. And so really by the time my sophomore year hit, and this is again, around the time where I really transitioned into a deeper form of eating disorder and bulimia and all of that, I just, 
I was just exhausted of trying to keep up that image. And we had some events that happened at the end of my freshman year. Uh, depending on who's listening to this story, you may or may not remember, or depending on where you're from, there was a massive set of tornadoes that came through Tuscaloosa, Alabama in April of 2011. And that was the end of my freshman year. And to say that was devastating and traumatic would be an understatement. It was, I was not personally involved in the tornado, but we were about a quarter mile from where it hit. And so just, we stayed for about a week afterwards to help clean up and to just, you know, just be available in whatever capacity we could. And that was, it, it affected the whole town, the, you know, anyone who lived there, experienced that, saw the transformation of our city from normal to just devastated. It was a turning point for me because, you know, reality just hit so hard. Our whole finals, all of our school finals exams were canceled. And so it was just a very odd way to end our freshman year. And that was really one of the, I've been blessed to not have gone through a lot of traumatic experiences in my life, but that was secondhand trauma that I went through and observed other people going through that really impacted me. And so I think that just set off something in my brain where, you know, it was, it was just a very out of body time and experience for me. And then I went home for the summer. I had dated a guy my freshman year who we, we broke up over the summer and, you know, anytime you have a relationship, a volatile situation with that, or just ups and downs in relationships, I think that can affect you. And so really by the time I got back to Alabama for my sophomore year, I was just, I was exhausted being the good girl. I was, what's funny is still wanting to project an image, but at this point I kind of wanted to just give it a go and try out the college experience, do what my teammates were doing, do the partying scene. And I just wanted, I was just, I was just tired at that point of holding back. So, whereas I did keep the eating disorder and all of that a secret, I really just let myself go in a lot of other ways. That fall of 2011, you met your now husband, Kyle. And like most young couples, you both fell in love very quickly. You knew within a very short period of dating, you wanted to spend forever with each other to the point where within a month, physical boundaries really weren't existent. And since we're all about honest conversations here and sex is such an issue for many young people, I want to delve a tad bit into your story about that and and why you feel that you compromised in that area of your life. That's such a good point. It is. I think this is another one of those topics that doesn't get talked about enough because like I had mentioned before, growing up, I knew God was in my life in some capacity, but I was never really taught. I knew that there was a general idea of you're supposed to wait till you have to, to have sex until you're married, but I didn't really know why I didn't really understand in depth yet. Mm. The, the ins and outs of God's design for marriage and, and sex and why God's design is best. I really, like I said, even though I had been pursuing my faith more consistently, my freshman and even into sophomore year, I just, I didn't have a huge grasp on what it meant to do things God, God's way and to obey him in that way. And so really it, it was one of those things where I just, I had kind of had this half formed idea for so long that, oh, I'll probably wait until marriage to have sex. But when 
my sophomore year when I kind of let a lot of inhibition or inhibition take over, I, that was one of the convictions that I did not really have a solid foundation for. And so that was one of the first to go. And, and in my mind, I was thinking, okay, maybe I'll just wait till I find the person I want to marry because, you know, in my, in my mind, that was a good compromise where, okay, you're not just sleeping around or having sex with anyone you meet, but if you find the person that you want to marry or eventually will marry, then what's the harm? You know, it's that deception that Satan really provides uh, in, I think, so many people's lives where had I known my own personal reasoning for that conviction, I think I would have had a lot more solid ground to stand on, but that conviction was just lacking. Um, And so when I met Kyle and, you know, we fell in love, as they say, which looking back, I, it's funny because I, I think it's just the sovereignty of God of him bringing us together and protecting us in, and just redeeming our whole relationship throughout time. But it's, it's one of those things where I think God just had his hand on us because I probably fell in love with him for the wrong reasons. You know, I was not in a good mindset and yet God used, God used our, just our brokenness and our past. And even the season that we were in, when we met, he was in a very dark place as well. He has his own testimony that, you know, could go on forever as far as where he started from and where God brought him. But, but neither of us were in a place where we could enter into a godly relationship of any kind at that time. So that's where God's sovereignty really had a hand where, um, despite all of our mistakes and all of our, our, you know, just, I guess, not knowing why we were in love with each other, just knowing we were, and probably a decent amount of infatuation at the time, God was still so faithful to bring us into an actually Christ-centered relationship eventually. And so on the subject of, you know, premarital sex, I think we, but neither of us just had that conviction to start with. And so it was, just easy to let our guard down. And we didn't think twice about it at first. You and Kyle both at that particular time would have at least said that you were Christians. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know a lot of people hearing this story would question, you know, how one can call themselves a believer and still engage in moral compromise. I wonder if you could address that a bit. Yes. And that's something that I, I really, you know, God has given us so much grace and mercy through this process that we, I feel like are now able to extend to other people. And that is one thing that I really wrestle with in my own heart, because I know that there is a difference between sinning, you know, of course we all sin on a daily basis. Our very flesh is against us every moment, but there's a difference between struggling and overcoming sin and walking in the spirit and having conviction bring us to repentance daily versus living in sin and justifying our sin and, um, and making a practice of sin. You know, the Bible talks about how, if you are truly in Christ, you no longer make a habit of sinning. And so that is one thing where, you know, I know God's God works out 
our salvation or we work out our salvation along with God and he completes the work he begins in us from the very beginning. But it really wasn't until a, almost a year after Kyle and I met that both of us feel like we truly surrendered our lives to Christ and made him the center and realized, wow, we've been living in disobedience. And at the time that we met and the time that we were really falling into that habitual sin, we, we were honestly totally deceived because we would speak the words, you know, God approves of this because he knows our love for one another. And he, he knows we're planning to get married and God would not give us these desires if we weren't supposed to act on them. And I know that sound, especially believers who are listening to this and who know God's design for sex and marriage. It just sounds crazy when you say it out loud, because it's like, have you read your Bible? Have you, you know, how, how do you possibly justify this behavior? At least, at least admit that it's wrong, you know, as Christians, but truly our eyes were totally blind to, to what God's plan for it was. And honestly, that probably comes back to not having neither of us having a solid biblical foundation for relationships or marriage. We just kind of knew of these general ideas floating around in the Christian Mm -hmm. community. Yet we had not personally read scripture and understood the commands of God and to, and we hadn't um, truly surrendered our lives to make the Lord and scripture, the authority in our lives. And so, so it was, and that's just how the enemy works in my opinion, where I think it's given us grace and compassion to realize that other people who may be justifying sin in other, in areas of their life, despite them, them calling themselves Christians. I I'm reminded of the fact that Satan can be so deceptive, especially if people aren't in the word. And so I know, I know for me, I've felt like I've been a Christian my basically my whole life since five years old when I prayed that prayer. And, and I honestly can't give a straight answer as to whether I became a Christian, you know, a year after I met Kyle and surrendered my life to Christ fully and really started walking in obedience. That's really, it was, it was around my junior year of college where I feel like I was actually born again, regenerated in that Mm -hmm. moment. And, or yeah, during that time, um, so it, it's, that's a very, I know, complex thing for a lot of people because, you know, you, especially in our culture, there's so much, if you say you're a Christian, that can mean any number of things. And so, yeah, we would have said we were Christians, both of us. And it wasn't until we really started diving into scripture and, and seeing what God had to say about it, that he brought conviction on our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And we finally did surrender that when you guys got to that point, how did you notice God's blessing leading up to marriage um, through your obedience and being willing to do things God's way and how it influenced sort of your, your walk with him? That is one of my favorite, very favorite parts of our whole story. (laughs) I remember just on our wedding day crying for (laughs) probably an hour that morning as I prayed and I wrote a letter to Kyle and um, it still brings me to tears now because we, we got married. I believe it was, let me think about this. I guess we dated for about a year and a half 
after surrendering our lives to Christ. Mm -hmm. Um, So about a year and a half, maybe actually two and a half years. I don't know. The years start to run together, but we dated for a decent amount of time and we're attempting to do things God's way for a very large chunk of time before we got married. And so I just remember on our wedding day, looking back at the previous years of where we started and where we had gotten to. And it was just such an emotional, um, an emotional moment and day to realize, you know, that wedding day, people would say, you know, it's not about the wedding day. It's about the marriage. And, and that is true. But for us that day that we got to finally join in marriage after fighting for purity for the better part of, I think around two years was just so significant in our lives. And it truly is my favorite part of our story because, um, the blessing and the redemption and the just ocean of grace we felt on our wedding day was, Mm -hmm. um, nothing like I'd ever experienced. And so I will be honest, the, the struggle up until that day was so real. It was day in, day out, putting the flesh to death. I mean, attempting to just fight for the purity that God calls us to. And I think that it makes sense why when Christians, when truly godly couples want to glorify God, there's no, there's no point in waiting around for, for marriage because you want so badly to follow God's commands. And based on where Kyle had started, Kyle and I had started with our relationship, you know, we had worked backwards for months and months and Mm -hmm. had been brought to conviction and basically went from having zero physical boundaries to attempting to have every physical boundary in place. Um, well, not, not every physical boundary, but, you know, we, we basically kissing only was allowed of course. And so, but for us being long distance, especially we didn't have each other in our daily lives. So when we would see each other anytime during our long distance relationship, it was, it was very hard to figure out the logistics of, okay, how much is too much, even just spending time together, you are just drawn into temptation at every turn, it seemed. And so while we, we truly, we never did have sex again until our wedding day after we decided, okay, we're surrendering this. We're not gonna, we're not gonna do this anymore until we're married. Um, There were a lot of other struggles and you know, times where we failed to uphold the own, the, our own boundaries that we had set in place for ourselves. And we, you know, it was just a constant battle, but the cool thing was we had worked backwards. So, so much for so long, we actually decided to not kiss at all for six months leading up to our wedding to make it even that much more special, which sounds silly to some people. And, you know, for us, it was almost like a a fun way to, to just go the distance with what God commanded to, um, you know, just finish strong and to say, Hey, we've come this far. Why not go a step further? And so when we did kiss at the altar on our wedding day, it was the first time we had even kissed in six months. And so that was just a super cool moment because knowing where we started, knowing the deception we were under, at the time when we met and, you know, even for almost a year after that, until we surrendered our lives to Christ, we, it was just a total redemption moment Mm. where we could see, we could trace 
literally trace the work of God in our lives mm-hmm. and the work of the Holy Spirit, because we knew on that day, we were not the same people that we were when we met. It was night and day difference. It was a total testimony to what God can do when, when we truly open ourselves up to his power and working and really just what his role plays in. He gives us his Holy Spirit and he's the one that brings the conviction. And so we just gave all glory to God for, for what he had done in that season. You touched on this a little bit earlier, but I wanted to sort of delve into it in a little greater detail for a minute. And you were mentioning that Kyle was extremely honest and candid about his stories. You guys were getting to know each other and his openness was a, an attraction point uh, to you, mm-hmm. but it wasn't until you know sometime into your relationship that you both realized you were each hiding something major from each other. And shortly after having had the previous hard conversations about physical boundaries and all of that um he dropped a bombshell one day that ultimately also brought out your secret about the anorexia and I was just curious if you could just take us into that moment and tell us about that for a moment because so often on this podcast I emphasize the need for hard conversations and your story's just filled with evidence of this and I'm just interested how you saw God use the pain of having both of your secrets exposed to draw you guys closer to him and also the positive role that hard conversations continue to have in your journey together. So that was really the turning point for us, what you just referred to. So to kind of summarize the timeline, we had met we had no boundaries. Kyle was very much at first when we first met very easy to get to know. He was an open book about most of the things in his life. He had just had a very tough few months in his life, a very dark few months from some events that had happened. And, and, you know, during this time where we were falling in love with each other and doing all the things that we thought we were, you know, fully within our rights to do. And then that about eight months later, that following summer, after we met, we started doing a Bible study together and we, we were reading through the book of Matthew. And it's just funny how you're in such a season of disobedience to the Lord. And yet God, for some reason, draws you into, um, into reading his word and to, Mm -hmm. and like God totally just uses that in order to bring conviction, like only his word can do. And so, um, so when we got back to, uh, when I got back to Alabama, my junior year, after being in Texas the whole summer, we, that was, it was at that point where we really felt conviction about our physical relationship and needing to surrender that to Christ. And so we were like, okay, we're going to do this God's way. And then really that was, that began this domino effect of where okay, if you say we're surrendering our lives to Christ, God's going to bring up all kinds of things that need to come out into the open little by little. And so the bombshell was that about a month after we decided to, to put up all of our physical boundaries, um, Kyle came to Tuscaloosa one weekend and, um, we had, we had watched a church service online that morning. And then, we, I guess, started talking about the service or something, some spiritual conversation. And Kyle just started 
crying, bawling his eyes out. And I was so alarmed because I knew something was wrong. I just had no idea what, what could possibly be going through his mind. And so long story short, come to find out he had, uh, kept up a relationship with a girl throughout the previous few months, um, from the beginning of our relationship, purely a physical relationship, but again, total, (laughs) he was being deceptive towards me and that he was, you know, saying that he wanted to marry me and that we were totally exclusively dating each other during that time. But yet he was, um, basically having sex with another girl at that time during our long distance relationship. And so what his, and of course, at this point, when he's telling me this, he is completely broken over it. It had already, it had ended a couple months before, but he had tried to move on from it and tried to put it out of his mind. And he just knew that he couldn't, um, he, he just, he said he couldn't look himself in the mirror any longer without telling me about it. So this that's at that point where he felt so much conviction over it that he confessed that to me. And that was really the one big secret I would say that he had held on to. Um, because like I said, he was such an open book in other areas, but he had kept that one secret in his back pocket for so long. And his, he had gone through several really hard relationships with girls before he met me and just had been hurt in the past. And so his rationale was that he wanted to kind of have, have the upper hand or, you know, I guess, keep, keep the upper hand in some way on me in case I turned around and hurt him, then he wouldn't, then it was almost, you know, again, this deception of the enemy saying like, Oh, you need to, you need to keep another girl around just in case Callan tries to hurt you, then you can hurt her. And of course that's totally messed up. But again, that's how the Mm -hmm. mind of a broken sinner works. And so that was the, the big thing he dropped on me in that moment. And then that was the moment when I told him about my eating disorder, which I had never shared with anyone before. And that was the big secret that I had been holding on to. And so that was kind of our huge moment where so much pain was exposed in one conversation. And, you know, I'll never forget that day. It was, or that moment, it was so, I can't imagine how hard it was for him to share that with me and vice versa. You know, I had I had planned to kind of just recover from my eating disorder on my own and never have to tell anyone. So for me to actually feel like, okay, this, this eating disorder has control of me. I need to share this. And since he shared such a big, um, a big thing with me, I told him and I was like, okay, finally, all of our secrets are out (laughs) to the best of my knowledge. This is the last straw where this is finally revealing all of our brokenness to each other and, you know, just confessing it out loud before the Lord too. And so, uh, we knew, we knew God was in control of our lives, but that did. And we had really, we had made so many strides up to that point to put Christ at the center, but there was so much pain that got revealed in that one conversation that I know for Kyle, it, it really brought on his ultimate surrender to put Christ at the center of his life. And for me, the pain of knowing that he had been unfaithful to me for so many months, I, I realized how much I needed the Lord to fill that, fill that void in my life and to, you know, just be the healer for my heart because there was, you know, even though 
it was, his relationship with that girl was over and we could move on from it. That didn't stop the fact that there was so much pain involved and, and even the pain at finally admitting that I was struggling with an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, that was what had to be dealt with. And so I just remember we went to a, a worship service that night. Kyle had already gone home, gone back to his school. And I went with my roommate and I just remember being completely broken that night during the worship service and realizing I was, you know, we were at rock bottom, both of us in our individual ways. Um, But that's the best place to be, honestly, because you're so dependent on the Lord in that moment for literally everything and to heal you and to use your brokenness to, you know, start from square one and start building, building that back up. And so really um, it was not, Kyle and I, I think that bonded us a lot where we had such a strong relationship after that because we had been so honest with ourselves or with each other and ourselves, but we did not share any part of those big secrets with other people until I think it was at least a year later. Mm. Um, And I didn't share those two big secrets with my family until um, just a couple of years ago, I think it was 2018. So probably four years ago. And this all happened back in, you know, 2013. So it was quite a while before we opened up to other people about these struggles. So for a long time, it was something that we held very close to the chest and that we, um, we just, it was, we had enough healing in the moment just between the two of us. And so we did tell other people along the way, but I would say it was hardest for me to tell the people that were closest to me, if that makes sense. Because, And I think that goes for a lot of things where I kind of procrastinated on telling a lot of people about these deep, dark secrets, even though Kyle and I had wor- worked through them all, because those conversations can be so hard to have. But um, I know we're, I'm kind of getting into the, the future a little bit, but, um, but finally getting to the point where I felt so convicted that people still, they looked at Kyle's in my relationship and they knew some aspects of it, but they didn't know everything. And so it became to the point where I was so convicted that I wanted to give God as much glory as possible for what he had done in our life mm-hmm. and in our relationship that I couldn't keep quiet about all these, even the big things anymore, which is when we kind of started telling people mm-hmm. uh, years later about these major things that had gone on. A lot of people out there when they feel cheated or betrayed in some fashion, find it very hard to forgive in the aftermath. Can you talk about how you and Kyle found the grace to forgive each other's past? I definitely think that, you know, I think some people, you know, the Bible talks about the gift of mercy and the gift of, or just the grace to forgive others. And I, I know so many people struggle to forgive the wrongs that have been done to them by other people. And I will be honest when Kyle told me about his, about when he was unfaithful to me, I was so in love with him and with the person that he had become and that God had transformed him into to that point because of, I knew how much we had both grown spiritually up to that point that it honestly took me no time at all to just say, you know, you're forgiven. This is, you know, it's going to be okay. I think those were the words I, I 
said where after he told me is it's going to be okay. And I, on his end, he says that he expected me to just break up with him on the spot that we were done. He was, that's why Mm. he was so afraid of telling me because he thought, you know, even though he had intentionally made these decisions to hurt me, he didn't want to lose me. And he was so afraid that I was just going to be done with him after that. Mm. And so while my, I guess, I don't know if it was my I can say it was my nature to just forgive him because I was so in love with him. I really think it's the grace of God just mm-hmm. flowing through me at that point where I knew how much God had done in my own life that I just wanted to pass that grace on to Kyle um, and that mercy to be able to say, Hey, it's okay. Whatever you've done in the past, we all have things we've done and gone through that we wish we could take back. And, you know, let's just start from this point and move forward. And, So for me, it really, it was a no brainer in the moment to forgive him. But what I didn't realize in that moment was how much pain would be caused by that secret being revealed because yes, it was an easy decision to forgive him because of my love for him, but that did not mean that there was no pain that followed. And that's really where my relationship with the Lord flourished one-on-one because I realized my deep, deep need for healing from that. So I think um, on Kyle's end, he, he says in his own words that that's what that moment where I just said, oh, you're forgiven, you know, no questions asked. That was the moment where the gospel really clicked for him because he had, he was fully expecting to just to, for me to be done with him. And he realized, wow, that was, that's what God does with us in our sin is he, you know, he remembers our sin no more. And he counts Mm. the righteousness of Christ as our own, Mm. which is completely undeserved. And so he felt very undeserving of forgiveness in that moment. And I truly can't take credit for the forgiveness I was able to show him because I know that that's the work of the Lord through me showing that to him. And so, but I know, I know in my own life and and towards other people and towards different things that have happened. I know that for myself and for other people, it can be such a struggle to, to forgive because, you know, what's that phrase, you know, you can forgive, but you can't forget. And that the pain that's caused by a lot of people's hurts towards you can be an ongoing daily battle to have to take those thoughts captive. Um, So that really, it was a battle for a long time to get past the actual pain that it had caused. But I think that's one of those things that we have to be reliant on the Lord for, for him to give us grace and for us to extend that grace to other people. And it's not a natural human tendency. So I would say it's a work of the Holy spirit for sure. The ability to accept flaws is such a part of human nature. Um, in Kyle's case, you had to accept some external flaws while he in your case had to accept some internal flaws how can someone learn to see themselves and those around them through more compassionate eyes and be able to accept who they are and who others are as beautiful creations of God in spite of their imperfections and shortcomings I think that you know we are such a (laughs) self-focused people, you know, in our culture, and especially just as human beings, where we have such a sin nature of wanting to, we just have such a log in our own eye about our own, our own shortcomings. And it's so easy to focus on the shortcomings of only other people. And so, you know, when it came down to 
Kyle's and my relationship and the flaws that I saw in him. And, you know, to this day, we can always find flaws in other people. And I know that's a personal struggle for me is not being critical towards other people. And I think that flows from for so long, I was critical of myself to the point where I would really, um, I would just really criticize myself to the point of like we were talking about projecting a certain image to other people. So it's easy for me to see, oh, you know, especially in Kyle, who you, who I'm with every single day, it's easy to be so critical of little and big things um, when it comes to that. And so I think really what's grounded me the most and helped sanctify me the most in this area of growing to be able to not view people through that lens of my own self-righteousness is that we just have to keep the gospel in perspective every single day, because, you know, the more that we see our sin for what it is, and the more we see how much God has saved us from our sin and our brokenness. And Mm -hmm. in a way you don't, you don't want to turn the focus on yourself that, you know, we want to be selfless and we want to look to the needs of other people, but in some ways we want to always be coming back, not in a, not in a negative way or or a critical self-deprecating way, but we want to always keep view in view our own sin and what we have been saved from because I know that's whenever I'm feeling critical towards Kyle or anyone else or bitter or I have a a view of myself where oh I'm the wise one I'm the righteous one in this situation God has a very efficient way of humbling me to help me remember my own sin and where he's brought me from and I think that's the heart of the gospel is we are able to see our sin for what it is. And he gives mm-hmm. us those eyes to see ourselves, not so that we can feel bad about ourselves or to, you know, like I said, it's not in a self-deprecating way where we have low self-esteem, but it's to see, wow, look at what God has saved me from and look at, thank goodness for the righteousness of Jesus that we can now be seen by God in the light of Jesus's perfection. Mm-hmm. And we don't have to earn that ourselves. And so I think just knowing how much the Lord has made up for our own unrighteousness, we're able to extend that to other people. So I think honestly, just reading scripture and, you know, reading any of Paul's letters in the new Testament, especially, and reading about the failings of the Israelites in the old Testament there. I mean, throughout the Bible, there's constant examples of reminders of what we've been saved from and being saved from our own sin and being able to pass that grace on to other people. In the years since that broken season in your life, you've become a big advocate for health and wellness and learning to care for yourself is a big motivation behind that. The fact that you remember what it was like not to love who you are and to accept and care for yourself. And has it also given you a greater sympathy for the struggles of others and allowed you to understand deeper issues that underlie others' behavior? I think, you know, on the side of, I am such a lover of talking about physical health and wellness and in such a different sense than I used to think of it as. And I, I do, I have such a, an appreciation for, you know, having a well-balanced diet and of how to not be in this constant diet mindset of, I have to restrict myself here. And, you know, I have to not use this or not do that. And, and I think I've found so many ways of thriving in my own life through food and through 
different products that I use and that's all well and good, but the, the mindset part of it is just so key, I think, which the Lord totally brought me out of, because even though I stopped, I really went back to trying to find a, a decent, you know, way of an ordered way of eating as opposed to disordered. Um, after Kyle and I shared those secrets with each other, it really took so long for me to get into a healthy mindset of viewing my own body in a positive light. And so I think now it really does give me compassion for other people's struggles and being able to, to recognize when people are in a mindset where, you know, the, the fruit of their thinking is really holding them back because I know I've just bounced around so much to between mindsets and going from such a restrictive mindset and a perfectionistic mindset to now being able to enjoy life and to, and to really just reap the benefits of enjoying food and not constantly overthinking everything. And I think that uh, just going through what I did has helped me to, um, to, yeah, to really see other people's struggles for what they are, because I think they can mask themselves as, as, you know, you think, you think someone, oh, that maybe they're just, maybe they're just really wanting to look in a swimsuit, but then you think underneath that, what is really going on? And so mm-hmm. I think God has given me a real passion for, um, for health in a different, wholesome, holistic way than, than I had before. And realizing that health is so much more than, uh, you know, a number on the scale or how you look in, in a swimsuit or whatever it may be. And so that's been very transformative. And, and, and along with the eating disorder, apart from that, I have a lot of, not a lot, but I have several health problems, chronic health problems that I deal with on a daily basis that, um, that I really have had to address in a healthy way. Whereas I think before I would have tried to address them in a, in a way that wasn't probably wasn't the best way to go about it. So mm-hmm. it's given me for sure a different perspective on how to go about kind of solving the problems, both mentally and physically that may manifest themselves on, on in the area of health. A lot of people, once they've reached a point of admitting that they have an issue with something like an eating disorder or addictive behavior, find the healing process difficult because like you were kind of alluding to, it's hard to break a habit that's held such a powerful grip on your life. On just a practical level, if there's somebody listening that's that's trying to get out of a negative habit like that, can you just give some some practical daily kind of advice that, that worked for you to help you slowly take those baby steps to letting go and beginning to see yourself in a new light? Sure. I know for me, you know, like I said, I feel like my experience with an eating disorder was a lot more mild than, and, and short-lived than a lot of people experience. And I'm, sure. I, I never had or I never felt the need to see a professional counselor or a mental health advisor or anything like that. Uh, not that I could have, couldn't have benefited from one. Cause I think, you know, everyone has things that they could for sure address in their lives that could, that could help so much with, I know for me, the, the absolute turning point, And then I think the turning point every day after that was 
tell, telling someone and talking to someone on a daily basis. And for me, of course, that was Kyle at the time, who was my boyfriend, who um, I first just brought that, uh, brought that secret to light. That was step one, of course, like you said, admitting is sometimes the hardest part of that. But then it was, it was at least a year of, of hardcore struggle and mental battle and um, trying to find my new normal amid all of that, that was, it was such a battle, but, you know, I was so blessed to have Kyle through by my side through that whole process. And, you know, I think at the time I really was still kind of ashamed of that, um, Mm. that secret I'd been holding, which is why I didn't just go tell my mom or tell my sister or tell anyone else, because it was still a private struggle for me, even though Kyle did know at that time, but it does take a long time. I think for some people to feel comfortable sharing it with more people in their life. But thankfully I did have Kyle to talk to and to just see me through that struggle and someone that I felt like I could be totally open with about the struggle. And, you know, even, even after I told him, it was hard to be honest with him on a daily basis about where I was at with it and how I was struggling because I, I wanted to make, you know, I obviously wanted to do better with the struggle and to make him think that I was really healing from it. But I know that it was, I I still struggled with those thoughts. And so being able to still be honest with him, even when it was difficult in the healing process was very key. And to have someone who you can feel safe with and not judged by, and that you really, even though it's hard to be able to share with someone every single day, how it's going and um, whether that's one person or a group of people or a, a, a counselor, whoever it may be, to have, I think practically speaking for me, that was the absolute key was making sure that I could share with other people anywhere where I was at in the process. You're just weeks away from giving birth to your first child. What do you hope to impart to him as he grows when it comes to loving yourself and appreciating the way God made you? You know, that's one of the things that I, you know, it's funny because you learn so much throughout the years of you try to instill these lessons in yourself. And then you, you think, okay, what do I want to pass on to my kids? And what do I want to teach them about this? And I, it's something that I think is, you know, there's so many things you have to worry about at first when they're babies and you think, oh my goodness, down later down in the teenage years that I'll, I'll worry about that later. But it is truly one of those things that from the very beginning you, I think about, because I, I want to always create an environment of a not being critical of ourselves and making sure that my son sees that I'm not critical of my husband and making sure that I am building him up. And really for me, I think a lot of these issues for me um, that we've been talking about today, I think started with an environment of secrecy and a a mindset of, oh, I have to keep this covered up and I can't tell Mm. people who Mm. the real me is because they'll judge me. And so for me from, you know, day one with our kids, I really want to create an environment of openness, of forgiveness, of 
of being able to share struggles with each other, including not just saying, hey, kids, you can come to us anytime with your struggles, but really, you know, when appropriate, being able to share our own struggles with our kids, not only from the past, but presently, that we can create an environment that Mm -hmm. it feels safe to be able to talk about these things um, so that they know what if and when struggles like that do come up that they have a, a safe place they can go to and maybe that's not necessarily maybe they maybe they'll have other people in their people in their life besides their parents that they'll eventually open up to whether it's a someone who's discipling them or a, a different godly friend or someone but just so that they know that they can come to us with everything whether they're in trouble or they've made a mistake or they have not been following the Lord in some aspect, just to make sure that they know that there's grace for mistakes Mm -hmm. and for, and, you know, that, that talking about things is one of the most healthy and necessary things that they can do because we all need that safe space and we all need to create that environment for other people and create the, even just the invitation for sharing struggles, because it's so hard to bring up those things sometimes when it's the last thing we want to talk about. So that's kind of, that's what I want to instill in, in our kids. Cause who knows what our kids will struggle with. Maybe it'll be something similar to what our personal struggles were, but no, from the beginning, knowing that we want to create an environment where they feel like it's a safe space to share struggles is our, our hope and our goal. Over time, how have you been able to learn to be okay with not having to please everyone or have life be absolutely perfect all the time? And what benefit have you seen from turning loose of that myth? You know, I think we're all after the a big word in our culture these days is freedom. And everyone wants freedom from this and freedom from that. And of course, the Bible talks about freedom from our sin. And we, it's something that a lot of people pursue in different areas. And biblically as Christians, we want to pursue that freedom from sin where we're no longer slaves to our sin, but we're slaves to Christ and his righteousness. And so for me, um, the, the older I get and the more God shows me where this, this habit of people pleasing and this this struggle of needing other people's approval, the more he shows me what avenues that that is, that it, that it's, you know, there's so many opportunities that I have to struggle with that sin in my life because it manifests itself in so many different ways. The more he shows me that, I think the more that I'm able to recognize it and to repent of it and to take those thoughts captive. And really it has brought so much freedom. And I will be honest, I still struggle with that on a daily basis with different people in my life. And with, you know, when I meet new people, it's, it's like an old habit that I am susceptible to fall back into because I want people to have a certain perception of me. But the more that I deal with that sin, the more I am able to recognize it when it happens. And the more that I'm able to just turn that over to the Lord and to Mm -hmm take those thoughts captive. Cause I think the, I struggled with it the most when I was not even aware that it was a sin problem or a, a struggle. And so the fact that God has brought that to my attention and that he's taken the veil down to realize how much of a, of an issue this is and how much of a pride issue it is in my life and a sin, the more I can continue to walk with him and repent of it. And I think the 
the more, even though it's still a struggle, the it's, it's, there's so much more freedom on the other side of it. And just relief to know that, you know, that that's, I'm not, God doesn't call me to please other people. You know, I'm called to walk in obedience to him. And he really has given me so much peace and relief from that struggle, even though it, it, it is ongoing, but, um, I pray that it's, you know, it's one of those areas that I'm more and more sanctified in every single day. I always like to ask my guests toward the end of our time together, if you could sum up your story in a certain theme or message, it could be a quote, a scripture verse or a general concept, what would it be? That is a great question. I actually have one, um, one verse that comes to mind. I'm actually going to read it verbatim just because I love it so much. Um, it is first Peter two, nine, and it says, but you are a chosen race, a Royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And that, that verse was so elemental in me getting to a place where I felt like I could share my testimony with other people that I could tell people what God had done, because it truly is a darkness to light story that God has done in both me and my husband's life. And so, um, that I would say pulling from that verse, you know, we are called to proclaim God's glory and to, in, in a sense of what he's done in our lives, we're not supposed to keep that quiet. And so whether it's telling my story to other people or sharing a similar struggle that someone else may be going through to be able to relate to other people, I, I, it really, the theme for me would be the transparency and the vulnerability that so many people lack these days, I think. And again, that's a gift of grace that I've received is the, the courage to be transparent about my story, because I know that I was once in a place of just trying to cover everything up, trying to project an image. And when God finally brought me to a place of being vulnerable, little by little, you know, it didn't happen overnight, but um, there's just, I've seen the fruit that can come from it in my own life personally. And then with so many people who I'm able to share my story with that, you know, people can relate to, or people think, Oh, I thought I was the only one, or thank you so much for, you know, helping me know I'm not alone in this. Mm -hmm. And so that is really where, where God has threaded through a theme throughout the last decade or so of my life is showing me what transparency and vulnerability can do both in our own personal lives and in the lives of others to truly the point of it is to glorify God and to proclaim his excellencies. And so I think that would be my, my final words on that is just the value and the, I mean, the total transforming power of being vulnerable with your story. If those listening want to learn more about your journey or get in touch with you personally, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, we have, we actually got to the point a couple years ago where we shared our testimony publicly online. And so we have a website called candidconkles.com, the word candid and then C-O-N-K-L-E-S.com. Um, and we have a few other posts on there. It's not something we keep up with 
all the time, but we have been able to use that landing page as a, a source to share with other people if they want to read in depth the whole story that we've been talking about today. Um, there's that. And then I'm on social media as well. I'm on Instagram as Callan underscore Elizabeth underscore, and then on Facebook too, as Callan Elizabeth Conkle. So yeah, that's where I'm at. As we conclude our conversation, I'd love for you to just leave the listeners with some encouragement who may be struggling to accept their own flaws or to let go of their perfectionism. I would say the biggest thing that I look back on that I really, you know, it's one of those things I didn't realize how significant it would be at the time, but throughout those struggles that I was having, knowing that really the answers that we're all searching for, A, always point back to God and his word. And, you know, that sounds like such a Christian answer to say, look in his word for answers, but it wasn't until I started reading through the gospels and the book of Matthew and really just taking baby steps to understand what scripture says in context about about our identity as Christians and, you know, who he's created us to be both that, you know, we're totally fallen, sinful human beings. And yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so the message of the gospel that's contained in the Bible is so elemental defining our identity. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I, there's so many earthly answers out there that you could say, you know, take this, read this self-help book and think this (laughs) mantra every day. And there's, there's so many things that I think people do find success with apart from Christ, but I know apart from Christ and his word, I would not have the redemption story that I have. Mm -hmm. So that's always my first go-to as far as, um, you know, just my advice of getting in the word and seeing what God really says about you and who you are. And on the practical side of that, um, finding people who are walking through struggles with you and who, you know, are going to point you back to the truth of your identity in Christ. Um, you know, as far as an encouragement, I just think it's a, it's a one day at a time process. There are some moments I can look back on in my life where I, I see overnight change or overnight transformation. And I see, and even not even the overnight transformation, but, oh, that one day was a turning point in that big moment of this and that, mm-hmm. but truly those moments are so few and far between. It takes daily commitment to you know, walking with the Lord, walking with other people, even when you feel like you're taking two steps forward and three steps back, the daily commitment and faithfulness in the little things is going to bring you to where you want to be. So no matter what your struggle is, staying with it, staying the course, you know, receiving grace for the the times where you don't feel motivated or you feel like, oh, I'm just going backwards. There's always a new day to be able to to, you know, continue to take steps forward with other people helping you along and encouraging you. And so I would just say, keep taking it one day at a time. And eventually you'll find, you'll see all those small steps strung together and it creates such a, such a big picture of redemption. Callan, thank you for coming on here today. Your story has God written all over it. And I know he will continue to use it to inspire greater honesty in others as they wrestle with themselves and discover how to let them into the deeper parts of their lives. Thank you so much, Catherine. I'm I'm so honored to be able to share my story. 
A big thanks again to Callan for being with us today. I hope you enjoyed and were blessed by this tremendous conversation and that it can hopefully propel you toward greater honesty, both with yourself and others going forward. Our hope is that maybe what's been shared here today can help you have your own hard conversations and find healing for your own secrets you've been hiding. If you liked what you heard today, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast and continue to listen as episodes are uploaded every week. You can connect with me on all my social media platforms, Twitter, Instagram, Parlor, and MeWe, as well as my weekly blog, www.graceopens.blogspot.com. I appreciate you joining us. And until next time, keep living bravely and always remember that Grace will meet you where you are.